here to introduce our new podcast episode. This one is an interview with an artist named Ashley Pryor Geiger, and she has a piece that's included in our January issue. Uh, That piece is called Threshold, and if you take a look at our website uh, on the podcast page, I reposted uh, that piece, uh, so it's easy to see uh, if you're listening. And the website there is wildroofjournal.com slash podcast. So you can take a peek at uh, the digital collage that she had included in the issue. Uh, And we do talk about it specifically closer to the end of our conversation. Ashley is mainly a digital collagist, uh, among some other types of artwork that she does. And she's, uh, in addition, she's a professor of philosophy. Ashley and I actually share a couple of experiences uh, in our own uh, creative journeys, oddly enough, uh, and we share uh, a great lake. We live at the at separate ends or opposite ends of Lake Erie, as it turns out as well. Ashley's based out of Toledo, Ohio. I hope you enjoy the conversation we have, and if you're a returning listener, uh, thanks can't say thanks enough for uh, for checking us out, and if you've come back, uh, hopefully gives you more of uh, what you found appealing about the first episodes that you heard. And if you're a new listener and you like what you hear in this episode, we do have uh, three other episodes up at this point. Two of them are interviews, similar to this, and one is a roundtable discussion where we pick some favorites that we published here and do a a little bit of analyzing and interpretation and talk about uh, what we liked about them. To give you a little bit of behind the scenes, I'm in in talks with uh, Chris Vogt, who was uh, one of the participants in the roundtable discussion. Um, So he may be a return guest on a future roundtable. My people are in touch with his people, all that kind of stuff. Um, Kidding aside. Plans are in the works for kind of continuing these generally at the beginning of every month. Hope you uh, check back with us, and for now, enjoy the discussion. So if you would, uh, give a a brief self-introduction, let everybody know who you are. Sure. Um, I'm Ashley Pryor Geiger. I am a digital artist with a sort of a special interest in collage. I do a little analog collage as well. I'm from the Rust Belt in Toledo, Ohio. Uh, I'm also uh, an academic. I'm an associate professor of the humanities at the Jessup Scott Honors College at University of Toledo. Okay, nice. So really what I like to start with is just to, to get a little bit of sense of more or less your creative journey uh, so far at least and maybe even like a formative experience that you might look back on as as something that was important? Sure. So um, my first academic love was art history. Um, I remember my mother for Valentine's Day giving me and it felt random at the time and I was I, I, I have to confess I was a little upset 
because um, it wasn't chocolates or something. She gave me um, a book on the American artist John Singleton Copley. But I was fascinated with it and just asked for more and more art books and just couldn't get enough of them. Um, and I was really lucky at my high school that I had opportunities to do advanced, you know, AP level work um, at the Cleveland Museum of Art, which is one of our, the national treasures. Another great fortune in my life has been um, to live in areas with really outstanding art museums. The Toledo Museum of Art, who would think, is really one of the great national treasures. So, um, so in any case, I um, really first started with an academic interest, although like lots of kids, I think I was always coloring and but at some point really fell into the trap of like, you know, art is, you know, you have to dedicate your life to be an artist and I, I, you know, I just never considered myself an artist in my early years, even with this intense art history background. So sort of fast forward, I, through my life, I've always um, done sort of craft type things and some art things too. Um, through my interest in uh, art history, I learned about the Fluxus movement artists like in music, John Cage, in dance, Merce Cunningham, um, in visual arts, of course, Yoko Ono, um, and Ray Johnson, who started a school of correspondence art. And that was my first real vehicle of sort of where I began to think, I am kind of a little, a bit of an artist. I would send things out in a sort of anonymous way through this informal, slightly anarchic group of correspondence artists. And my moniker at the time was Miss Maps. So there's some stuff still from those days that I would send out. Really as a mechanism for stress release. So, um, about five years ago, I got an iPad and my, my digital art practice really began, frankly, with just experimenting with filters on um, family photos and and then just just continuously pushing that effect until the point that it had very little resemblance to the original and I just really honestly kept building my skills from there and so then realized that um, that I could cut things out reassemble and that they started to look a lot like some of the collage artists that I had admired for years so it was really a little bit accidental, um, but now it is a primary obsession. I have a very robust uh, daily practice, and it was really through that, just day after day, um, working on skills that I fully embraced the title artist. That and, and frankly, the encouragement of, of my husband, who said, you know, if you're doing this every day, you really should start sending things out. And he's a poet. And so, you know, he, he was, he gave me guidance on where to start sending work out. Nice. Yeah. There's a, a lot there we can, we can get into. You mentioned that the correspondence are going back a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. What is that exactly? Sure. Well, I mean, it's basically creating artworks on that gets sent through the mail. There's nothing more sophisticated than that. At the time, I had this incredible, and I still do, do somewhere in a box in the basement, um, this amazing array of rubber stamps. 
again, I, you know, I sort of felt like, oh, I don't have a, a foundation in drawing. Uh, so what do I do? How do I express myself creatively? Um, and the rubber stamping in a way is when, when I look back is kind of a natural seed for what I do now digitally. But I would use sort of collage, analog collage techniques, scraps of paper, found things, rubber, manipulated rubber stamps, because you can cut them and reassemble them. And you just, it, it's really about the out exterior. It's not so much about what is, you can often send things even without something on the, on the inside, but it's just the idea of sort of spontaneous expression sent through the mail and to allow the sort of marking and accidental um, aspect of, of the US Postal Service. <laughs> So that's what it is. And Ray Johnson was the one who sort of coined the term for this practice. And in fact, um, he plays around with the spelling. So it's correspondence. <laughs> nice. That, yeah, that's, you know, there, there are some, uh, some parallels, I feel like, um, in, in some of the things you mentioned in some of my own experiences. But yeah, that's, that's something I'm not quite familiar with. Maybe I've feel like I've heard about it maybe a, a couple of times, but yeah, that's an, it's an interesting entry point. Yeah, because like you mentioned, it doesn't maybe feel like you're making something that has to be seen by a lot of people or that has to be like art with a capital A or something. Right, um, and I think something that will emerge from our discussion is I have a very democratic kind of anarchic sensibility that underlies a lot of it. I think a lot about my own experience about being hesitant to even think about myself as an artist. Um, so I love practices like this that are also that just are really about art can be found in the everyday and to embrace the element of surprise and to get out of your head, which is the same advice for writers too, I think many times. Yes, exactly. So I know that I I think of uh, myself a little bit, if I think back far enough, my, my main interest creatively was writing and doing maybe short fiction. I guess these days it might be called flash fiction or micro fiction. Yeah. And that's one of the, the main transition points for me is when I eventually through a series of events and, uh, and kind of other people's influence, um, got into more of the visual art, which yeah, it was so much more freeing. And I, a lot of times when you're maybe outside of an area where you think you should have a, maybe an expertise or you should, where you do have a, an academic background, when you get outside of that, you realize that things come a lot maybe more easy in terms of tuning into some kind of creativity that you're not, you don't get so bogged down with, uh, it's gotta be like this or it's gotta be like that or trying to do something uh, premeditated maybe. Yeah, you know, um, I mean, I so identify with what you said. I mean, our lives are, at least mine, is so full of oughts and shoulds. And so I love having, and I need to have a practice that is as, as um, limitless in its possibilities as possible. And I often find if I have to write something now, uh, you know, sometimes I can't, I can't quite express what I want to in writing. Um, and so having a, uh, an art, a visual arts practice too, can be very helpful to, to my writing. So sometimes it's actually only through manipulation of like images that I find 
an outline for what I need to say and vice versa. There's some things I can't, I can't quite figure out visually that I can in writing. And so it can be a very mutually beneficial relationship. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's kind of, yeah, it was one of my initial taking out points was the, the combination of the two, which obviously uh, if anybody is listening and looked through um, the wild Roof journal kind of the uh, mindset, you know, that's, you know, mm-hmm. that's one of the main things that I've uh, used as a, as kind of the, one of the themes, a loose theme. But yeah, you mentioned that the daily art practice. Can you describe that a little bit? Like what, what is, is it the same every day? Is it a more of a, a pattern that you go through or is it just a, a set amount of time? Yeah. Um, well, it's, hmm, it can look different on different days, but um, one of the things, again, that some people just absolutely poo-poo is um, that I am very active on Instagram. And it's really because there's a built-in arts community there that do these sort of digital challenges um, where someone will host a, an image and then we all go at it. And by the end of the week, you know, there's, there's like a selection process. And so I always participate in those. And um, again, for me, it's as much like problem solving. Um, so, so that's sort of already a built in kind of practice of accountability almost because we all expect each other's work at a certain point. Um, and there are multiple challenges. Sometimes I will also have a more focused project and I'm actually, Cross your fingers for me, everyone, um, due for a sabbatical after like 10 years. So I think that's happening in the fall. And so I do have some lined up projects, sort of a more thematic, um, systematic construct that um, that I will begin to schedule. But um, I do not allow, allow myself to go to bed at night until I have done something with digital arts. Um, I I should say, actually, I give myself one allowance. I also am a very avid um, improv, improvisational theater person. (laughs) So sometimes on those nights when I do a performance uh, and in a class, um, I allow myself to go to bed before hosting something. I think that's fair. That that counts as a creative uh, output, I would would say. it's probably beneficial not to, you know, you need structure in a, in a daily practice, obviously, uh, but it's beneficial not to be, not too loose and not too tight, as they say. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of the Instagram posts you do, um, a lot of the, I guess the, the source material is different types of old photography. And I'll link to your, uh, your Instagram account also when I do post this so people can get a selection. Um, but yeah, where does that come from? Where does the where does the actual images come from? Yeah, they they come from all over the place as long as they're fair use, right? Um, but most particularly, a lot of the images come from the Tulane University digital archives. Uh, I was really lucky to be selected as a participant in uh, Collage Magazine's Collage Institute um, this summer. And Tulane University and kind of gave us free reign of their archives. Um, And so a lot of the vintage photography is from that collection. Um, And including the one that was featured 
in Wild Roof. So that's a, a favorite source. One of the um, current obsessions I have is with a project called History Made Up. Um, and that is one of those that's um, I'm really hoping to fin- finalize for a show um, in the fall. But it's basically uh, using vintage photography of women in particular, uh, but not limited to women, um, running them through AI apps and then doing the kinds of manipulate, like finishing work. But I'm fascinated with how these interventions really change reception of women. I mean, particularly fascinating is when like you run Lucretia Mott through like an early feminist through this AI app, um, how, how very different the reception is. And I think that just opens up very interesting questions about assumptions about how very different people were in the past or how uh, unlike them or how liberated we are, et cetera. Um, so, and I would like to do more with my sort of academic interests with um, historical accounts and other archival uh, work to support that. You mentioned that putting a, an old, I want to get a few mm-hmm. questions about these old photos, but what do you, um, how does it work with that AI? Is it like a, it's pre-programmed to, to do something with the, the image and you're not quite sure how, how it's going to turn out or like what's the, um, how does it affect the, you know, an original uh, old photograph? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> So this is sort of a feminist concern I've had um, that motivated this project to begin with. I mean, I have I have friends even, and I'm in my 50s, who are running scenarios of their faces through these makeup apps that, you know, not only show you like how much better you could look <laughs> with a little lipstick, but also I think very... Um, perniciously sometimes are always linked to products. So it's not just that you run your face through it, but like, and here's where you buy it. And, and of course, you know, young, young people too are, are using this. Um, So I, I, you know, I'm always experimenting with things. I'm fascinated with all these apps, um, both in a positive way and a negative way. So I, I ran a couple, just on a whim, a couple of, uh, I think I was working with some Library of Congress images. And I was just like, well, let's see what happens. Will it work on these old photos? And it weirdly does. So, you know, it will, you can select different looks. And the way the algorithms work, they know where to put the lipstick. So it looks like it's, you know, belongs there and the eyeshadow and you can even do hair. Now it's not a, it's not perfect. And this is where the hand of an, you know, an artist, if you want to call the, this part of my work artistic, the sort of manipulate the further manipulation to make it as natural as looking as possible comes in um, where I think the real artistry or the artistic sensibility comes in with the project is these larger questions about what this kind of technology means and you know how it sh- continues to shape our identities, um, and again, this question about how does it change our reception of these historical figures? Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things going on there. <laughs> That's pretty fascinating. Yeah, just the, the concept overall. I'd be interested to see see some examples. Yeah. 
Is that is the Tulane archives you mentioned? Is that something that is open access, or is that something that's through like a, a university database or something? No, I mean it is. It's really open access. Um, so you just you know if you just Google Tulane University archives, I I love it, and and more and more universities and of course museums too are are opening their collection, um, which is just a field day for um, digital artists and collages in particular because we're borrowing so heavily from. Um, past sources and then bringing our own imagery in too. Um, but yeah, I would encourage people to go there. I loved in particular, there's a, a collection in the archive by um, a turn of the century sort of high society uh, photographer named Joseph Pops Witzel. And what's interesting to me is the collection is actually scans of his uh, glass negatives. And what that means is that there are just these incre incredible textures to them and often um, burn marks, not burn marks, but just corrosion. So the materials haven't held up. And but so there's already a really fascinating effect. And so they'd be quite useless to many people. But for me, they're gold because um, they're, they're often very disturbing. So people's heads could be halfway cracked off or, you know, it looks like they have a huge lesion on their neck. Um, so it's just very fun to work around. And also just the the constraints. I think one of the things I have discovered is that the more, it's almost like sonnet writing or something. When you have a very strict form, um, sometimes that really opens up more avenues for creativity as you have real obstacles um, or challenges um, to work to work with. Sure. And that that's true in a, in maybe just the, the using a, a more specific form, but it also reminds me of what you said earlier, kind of working with the limitations or maybe working around the limitations, even just artistically. So, you know, if, if somebody says, you know, well, I, I can't draw or I can't paint, um, but I can try to figure out something either, you know, it doesn't mean it's a, it's a lesser art or something because, you know, maybe a, a photographer isn't able to draw very well or something. But it's, you know, working with what you're interested in and using certain forms of art that complement that over, mm -hmm. over other ones. So I think that's kind of an interesting, I guess, a path for, for different artists in terms of what they what they're drawn to and using, you know, using what's available kind of a resourcefulness, I think, is a uh, is an important part of the creative process in a, in a lot of ways. There's a practicality to it that doesn't always get talked about with creativity. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I don't mean to interrupt. Sorry, but it's just what you said is so resonates. I mean, I think that um, you know one of the reasons I, I speculate here, but one of the reasons for this might be that um, we are still so wedded to this notion of the artist as genius from like really the I, I think that was the height of of romanticism. That's where we really got this idea of the artist genius often in whether writer or visual artists and working in isolation in some godforsaken garret. You know, I think when we uh, when we start exploring the accidental in art and um, and really thinking of it as a problem solving technique, um, it really it really problematizes that idea. Right. Um, and so while 
while there is an artist responding and working with the materials, we see that the materiality already has this really, this artistry within too. I, I, I just think it, it's a very disruptive practice uh, in that way. And I know I love it um, for that reason, that, that once I start thinking of it more as like, okay, so this is a problem to be solved and there are multiple ways to solve it. But here, when I'm dealing more with chance and like, and I allow things from the outside to be part of the practice, um, that's when I have the most satisfying um, process and often the, to my mind, the best result. Absolutely. I don't, I don't know if I'm, my idea on this is super accurate, but I mean, the, the, the genius idea you mentioned, I think maybe even a, it carries on today where we think of like, oh, that person is a genius. And it's like something that we see like within a person, but previously, I don't know how far back you got to go to it. It was something that was without, it was something that genius is something outside that is funneled through a, a person. Um, and I think there's something to that idea or I don't have, you know, maybe first that experience with what that's like or something other than, I mean, I guess you could just say like, you're, you're, you're just saying the, um, you know, the intuitive nature of it where you could say, well, that's just something inside me that's coming out by chance. Or you could say that's something that has been kind of filtered through what I'm putting out there with whatever which uh, creative output you're working with. Does that make any sense? Oh, it sure does. And it, it actually recalls, uh, there's a delightful and much neglected uh, platonic dialogue called the Ion. And there it's a discussion with Socrates in kind of early Socrates form, meaning, uh, he's, you know, he's just really asking questions. You get less doctrine. It doesn't end with a conclusive answer, but it's really about the nature of artistry and this character Ion, who is a who writes tragedies, is definitely advocating for this sort of divine inspiration, where he is sort of a vessel and doesn't know under Socratic questioning, like where do you come up with this and how do you know it's art and all these kinds of things. Um, so, so yes, I mean, we like like all ideas, you know, this idea of the artist has evolved through time and. I think we're actually in a, real, in a really interesting spot, um, you know, again, with, with contemporary concerns about more public art, uh, participatory artwork, um, and engagement with the community. I think we're, we're working through another iteration of what it means to be an artist. I hope. <laughs> sure. I have, yeah, I haven't quite considered it going in, going in that direction, but yeah, that's a good point. I know I just one of the, like, the thought experiments I always just kind of like to wonder about without uh, without I guess getting to it getting to the answer. Um, but yeah, just like where does the where does the idea come from? Like how did you how did a person how did I come up with that? So it's, I just always love that kind of the unexplained nature of it. And I'm personally I guess I'm just um, I'm willing to just leave it unexplained. You know I just I like the the, mis the mystery of it. <laughs> uh, maybe, that, maybe that's too much of a cop out. No. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it does it does uh make a lot of sense, at least with what um what I've done um with some digital digital art pieces that I've done. What else? You mentioned you use 
um, certain certain apps for the the digital processing or the digital editing. Mm-hmm. Um, have you come across ones you like or that are that are able to be accessed? If, if there's a listeners out there who are um, either photographers or want to explore, um, sure. ones that you would recommend. Sure. Um, I would say like my two like can't live without apps uh, are Procreate uh, and iColorama. Procreate is, um, I think it was first conceived mostly for people who are doing digital painting. Um, And the great advantage to Procreate is like Photoshop, you know, you work in layers. and Photoshop, I, I understand. I don't do any work really. And I have basic skills in Photoshop. Um, Procreate has a, a wonderful array of built-in brushes um, so that you can paint onto images, um, stamp onto images, um, as well as like compositional tools. So, you know, this is where I, I do the most of my um manipulations with like cutting things out and reassembling. Um, It also has features like liquify, so you can, you know, really change the shape with liquify warp, all that kind of thing. So, so I really love it. And I love too that uh, it has a, uh, a community of people who share their, make their own brushes. You can make your own brush you can share them freely or you can charge for them. So it's just an ever growing, it's just fascinating, just ever growing community. So I love that. And there's a, a nice discussion board. So if anyone wants to check that out, if you just like look up Procreate discussion board, you'll see people sharing tips, tutorials. It's really lovely. I wish all of the world worked like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, iColorama is another wonderful app. It's a, it's a little bit more, um, it has all sorts of tools too. Um, it's a little bit more of a closed system. That's not to say that there aren't also people who share work and tips on iColorama, but it has some more, it has more of the stamp of the initial programmer to it. But there are things I can do in iColorama that I can't do in Procreate. And it's it goes back to that sort of discussion of limitations. So sometimes I really want to do things in iColorama because I'm limited in a way that I might not be in Procreate. So it really helps me think through some things. And there are also some effects that I haven't figured out how to do in Procreate that I know I can do. So I would say for anyone interested in a uh, sort of moving from these standalone apps where like I talked about the makeup app or something like that. If you're really beginning to want to make more complex images, um, I would really check out those too. I think that they're the, the, the best unless you, you know, Photoshop is always an option. Um, I confess, I just felt very intimidated by uh, it. It's, it's a very, I find Photoshop a very linear interface and, um, it's and very complicated, even though they've done they've done a ton over the years to do tutorials. So I know things everything can be done in Photoshop. I'm just not I'm not proficient. I'm not comfortable in, in Photoshop in the way I am in these other interfaces. Sure. Yeah. And I've never is this like a confession if I people are making it this way. I've never used Photoshop, like the the uh the, the official 
you know, mm -hmm. these other photo editing software, of course, but, but yeah, so that it's good. To, it's good to know there's some other, other options out there. And yeah, if you look up, even if you're thinking of photo editing programs, even if you just look up open source photo editors, mm -hmm. there's, there's plenty of, uh, or at least a couple that I know of that are good options. What do you use, Aaron? What's your go-to? That's my secret. Um, but it's, it's actually a pretty, um, it's a pretty well-known one called GIMP. GIMP. Yeah, I was just going to mention that. So that's a, that's a, it's a good open source uh, photo editing program, and they do have updates pretty regularly. Um, and it, you know, it's similar to a Photoshop, I, I suppose. It does. There is a learning curve. It's not, it's not the most intuitive program to just like open up and start you know, start doing stuff. Um, but there's YouTube tutorials, which are, which are helpful. So it does take a little bit of learning to kind of figure out if you haven't used a photo editing program and, and you're, if you're not familiar with how layers work and, and how the tools work, it, you know, there's a little bit to work through, but um, I've, I've used it for, uh, for quite a bit now. So that's the one I would say I have the most experience with. But yeah, it, it is, it's good to kind of find different avenues like that because it, yeah, it's just, it's a different tool that people could use for different purposes, I guess, not just uh, creative arts, but yeah, it's, that's a good one. Um, well, you've mentioned along the way, you've mentioned a couple different uh, artists that you've come across even back to your, back to your childhood art history books. Um, one question I, I usually ask is just to get uh, either a recommendation or just maybe particular favorites in terms of maybe uh, particular writers that you uh, are drawn to maybe. Yeah. You mentioned a couple artists already. Is there any, uh, any anybody you consider a favorite or a current uh, recommendation for, even? For, for writers or yeah, for, sure. I can do artists and writers if you want. Yeah. Oh yes, whatever you got up the top of your head. <laughs> well, I'll I'll talk about some um, for those of you interested in sort of contemporary digital art scenes. Um, again, these are going to be from Instagram, but I I think that's honestly I think that's a great place. Um, with there's some very high quality curated Instagram galleries. A favorite is Marco Polo Rules, which to me is. Um, Sort of the premier place to find uh, surreal contemporary and past surreal style arts. Um, so I highly recommend it. Also, for those of you interested in collage, both analog and digital, uh, the Paris Collage Collective is a wonderful, again, curated place along with the Edinburgh, uh, I think it's Collage Collective too. So, so those are, they're, I just, I just love them, and every day there's something great. As far as some some artists who've sort of in, influenced me, in the in the past is um, Romare Bearden, who whose work is really interesting. He worked really, I think it was at his height probably in the 1950s, 60s. He was uh, kind of came after Harlem Renaissance was. Influence, I think was already doing some art actually at that time, but does some really beautiful collage work, um, really focusing on the African-American experience. Um, and also he 
fled to Paris for a while. So there, there's quite a really interesting range. And he was a professor of art at Howard University. And so like the quilt artist, Lisa Butler, whose work is really coming into full prominence now, was very influenced by her time studying with him. So check his work out. He's not, uh, I think, known as, as much as he should be. Um, I love the work of Dorothea Tanning as an early feminist surrealist, as well as Hannah Hoch. And Hannah Hoch was, of course, the, the godmother of collage art. So those are some, some must-sees. I'd mentioned um, then Ray Johnson for correspondence art, you know, Yoko Ono, still creating amazing pieces. Um, can I make a shameless plug for, for my, my husband? <laughs> As a poet, my my work is so influenced by him. I mean, I already mentioned that he was probably the first person to really encourage me to like send my work out. Um, but I I first started doing digital. I I didn't share this, but um, his poetry, a lot of it is very nature based. Um, really inspired me to do a series of images early on um, because he has he has just very concrete imagery and I can see it in my mind in a way that I don't always for you know for different different poetic styles you don't always do that so um so for those of you who like to have a prompt for visual imagery you check out his work his name is Timothy Geiger gosh I read all the time and partly for for you know my job so like this semester my work is going to be on service learning in Jamaica um, I'm reading a book called Children of Sisyphus right now. I work with a community in Riverton, Jamaica, that's um, in partnership with a, a group called International Samaritan. We work with um, communities who have historically uh, made their living through the garbage dump that is literally in their backyard. Um, and so there we're, we're, it's a, it, we're going to talk a lot about found art and helping build a community project there where community members can possibly create an income stream, thinking broadly about art and what they can find and what they can assemble and what they can sell. So that's really, real, really exciting. Um, but I read uh, the title on that was Children of Sisyphus. Mm -hmm. It's written by a Jamaican-born sociologist. He's now, I think, at Harvard. His name is, his last name is Patterson. I'm going to screw up his first name. So let me think about it. It'll probably come to me. But um, he's a sociologist, but also a very gifted writer, a novelist. So um, this was, this book was actually written maybe a decade ago, but it's still, it's, uh, it really focuses on children who have who are living in, in those difficult conditions. Um, I'm a philosopher. My doctorate is actually in philosophy. Um, and so I also, in my humanities class, and, you know, just, re I, I mentioned Plato, um, you know, my, my probably deepest philosophic love is Plato, particularly early Socrates. Um, I, um, gosh, I love Mary Oliver, pretty predictable choice for the rest of the United States, right? But I do really respond to, to, to her work. Um, I'm trying to think of who else um, I really love in the poetic world. I, I, do like, I do like artists who are interested in 
the the non-human world, um, the natural world. That said, also Wallace Stevens is just a continual source of of inspiration. And I shouldn't say but there because of course, you know, there there are beautiful natural images. I just, I associate him above and beyond uh, as, as poeticizing the imagination. Um, and so um, I love him. I mean, I'm so, I sound like a really canonical thinker. Maybe I am, but you know, Emily Dickinson too, is just when I think, when I am at a loss for how to start an image, I, I often will just look at Emily Dickinson because uh, it's as much the words that she has, but the, the beautiful pauses and lacunas between that I find really fertile for for thinking through imagining. I love Clarice. Now, this is another genre. I love uh, Clarice Lispector for um, for writing. Uh, just you know, um, she's a sort of a French philosopher novelist. Um, I love the stories of Lydia. Now I'm saying this. Now, now you can't. Well, you got quite a uh, quite a reading list going. <laughs> the other person, I'll just this. Will, I'll end with this one, but there are more. Like there, I already said you. My husband just said me. <laughs> um, I love the the short. I think the master of American short story right now, who I love the most, is Lydia Davis. Love, 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 love her. Love her work. Collected short stories of Lydia Davis. Um, just endlessly uh, fascinating to me. So yeah, that's yeah. probably enough for now. <laughs> I know, yeah, for real. There's um, um, there's always, and I, I mentioned this before, but there's always too much on a reading list to really, um, to really go through it all. A lot of times, you maybe pick and choose. So it's it's nice to have options. Um, but yeah, just the for whatever reason, the one you kind of mentioned kind of using Emily Dickinson's work for maybe purposes other than just wanting to read poetry and, and think about it. Um, the one that I think kind of just reminded me of is HD uh, Hilda Doolittle. Mm. And I, I have always kind of surprised if I come across one of her poems, they always find they just kind of make you just like stop for a second. Like what is, what does that mean? They're good. Always, at least the ones I'm thinking of that I've um, even used in classes are just kind of spent a few minutes with. Uh, they're just always presented in this very kind of strange way where it's not quite clear what what the meaning is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So I guess yeah. that maybe sometimes does translate into like a, the problem solving, you know, problem solving method where you have to figure it out uh, as a reader. Yeah, it's almost uh, like a, a cubist. It's almost like cubism within um, a poem with her, isn't it? Like, it's almost like looking at Cezanne. That yeah, I think the the one I was thinking of recently was is a garden. It might it might have been just called garden, um, but yeah, but you could probably find it if you if you look that up. Uh, but the last thing that I did want to get to is just the um, the image that was uh, part of our recent issue, issue six, if I'm remembering that correctly, um, in January, it was called Threshold. And I always loved getting a little bit of a peek behind the scenes. So can you share anything? It doesn't necessarily have to be, your, you know, what it's supposed to mean or anything big like that, but just 
Can you share a little bit about the origin of that or what was a little bit about the process that uh, maybe a viewer wouldn't know by just looking at it? Yeah, sure. Well, um, I really, when I, I choose to submit, I like, of course, to really to try to get my sense of the, you know, the, the feel and the spirit. And uh, so with Wild Roof, I mean, what a wonderful kudos. It's a, it's a really wonderful um, journal. And I'm so happy to, I feel like I, I'm meeting these, an expanded um, cohort of artists and writers. And I, it seems silly sometimes to split artists and writers, like artists, let's just say artists. Um, so I knew I wanted to, I, at the time I was working with the Joseph Pops Witzel collection. Uh, I had this weird image of this baby <laughs> in a bonnet with a pretty distressed look on the baby's face. And, you know, so that baby will probably reappear in a different way with the face or something. But um, I was, you know, again, sort of in this history made up mindset about just sort of the meaning of the past and how we receive these pictures of ridiculously dressed, over-the-top dressed babies um, from this sort of high society. Um, but working with sort of the environmental focus and vibe of Wild Roof, um, I just really started playing around with, um, you know, the kind of background, a vintage background that I chose that had a sort of surreal vibe and manipulating it you know, to make it more that way. And um, this was, I would say this was an intuitive piece more than anything. So I really didn't know up until the end what was gonna go in the baby's face, just that something would. And so um, I really finally decided it's gonna be an echo of the background. And as for the cassette, I'm still trying to work that out. <laughs> I mean, there, that is very intuitive about, I think, what I was thinking about as if this became sort of more the, the choice that was being made. And, and this is an example where I felt like it was almost being made for me. I and mean, I think I picked out a few. Sometimes I pick out objects that will work composite with composition in mind. So sort of thinking about scale, but of course I can manipulate that. So that's not that big a constraint. But I think that it was really about these, these markers in time that, you know, for someone like me who lived through the time where that was the way you kept music and you felt pretty sophisticated having these cassette tapes, um, that's a particular marker of time that's now lost and, you know, very um, it, it's either sentimental, those of us who still remember <laughs> and want to keep our mixed tapes. Um, so, so that was sort of the, the process of the decision and, and then the, the un, also just the feeling of things unwinding and unraveling. And I don't think given the week um, or the month that we've seen, I, I, need, I, I probably don't need to say so much more. Uh, except for to say, you know, again, historically, as you look through time, I think everyone's feeling their times are unraveling. Like this might be a persistent human condition. It's just that sometimes it's more acute in a, in a concerted discourse than other times. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for the sharing a little bit of that. That's a, 
an interesting process to get there. And then, of course, that's part of the beauty of uh, the creative process. When we look back at it, we can describe all kinds of different meanings that obviously weren't intentional, but they do resonate. And that's part of the part of the nature of this whole thing. So, um, yeah, at the moment, that, that definitely definitely makes sense as an interpretation looking back <laughs> on it. But obviously, it wasn't uh, uh, specifically in your in your creative process. Uh, but like you mentioned, yeah, that's part of the part of the human condition. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's that's great. So uh, I think that'll do it. Um, we'll put that image uh, threshold on the on the website. So if you are listening to this, it'll be right below, um, so you can take a peek at it. Uh, but otherwise, um, uh, thanks for joining me. Well, thank you. I mean, first, thank you for the opportunity to show my work uh, in such a um, just stellar venue and then thanks for taking the time to talk to me i just uh, i loved also hearing a little bit i want to hear more i'll look, keep listening to the podcast to hear more and more of your secrets revealed in the digital world but um yeah sure yeah i gotta save something for uh for, for <laughs> next episode so i don't want to give it all away um but yeah absolutely i'll uh, talk to everybody later okay thank you